I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, we've got a double feature. Later in the program, we'll be speaking with Shadowproof and the Dissenter Newsletter's Kevin Gastola about how the infamous Pegasus spyware of the NSO group is being used to target Palestinian activists. But first, we have a conversation, short but sweet, with William I. Robinson, noted sociologist and author of such books as Global Police State and the upcoming Global Civil War, Capitalism Post-Pandemic. He joins us to discuss his Truth Out article entitled The COVID Supply Chain Breakdown Can Be Traced to capitalist globalization. It's about a 25-minute conversation that delves into the crises of global capitalism, as well as issues such as the Fourth Industrial Revolution, the transnational capitalist class, and surveillance technology. So with all that in mind, let's get right to the conversation with William I. Robinson. Hey, Parallax Views listeners. Before we continue the show, I've got a movie that I want to tell you about. Check out the film Tremel by Christopher Jason Bell, available on the Slam Dance YouTube channel. The film follows Dale as he lives a solitary life in a small town, his only outlet being conversations with the local pharmacist Muhammad. As time passes, Dale slowly begins to reveal more of his life and history to Muhammad. Lauded for its empathy, Tremel highlights the forgotten community member in a time when there is no community, and examines what happens when someone's only human connection is a service worker. You can watch over at slamdance.com slash watch slash Tremel, or at youtube.com slash slamdance. Check it out, folks. Welcome back to Parallax Views. William I. Robinson, author of such books as The Global Police State, an incredible sociologist and a theorist on global capitalism who also specializes in global and Latin America studies. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you for having me on. So, William, I wanted to have you back on the show because you have a really interesting piece out on Truth Out org entitled the covid supply chain breakdown can be traced to capitalist globalization um maybe you, you could just start by giving us the flashpoints what's the relationship between the current supply chain crisis and capitalist globalization 
Sure. I mean, it's the, the, the immediate explanation for the supply chain um, breakdown, of course, is the econo worldwide economic meltdown brought about by, by the COVID pandemic. And what that did is, on the one hand, it, it was the um, single greatest economic calamity since the Great Depression. Um, a lot of economic activity ground to a halt. Whole industries had to stop uh, working for a significant amount of time. And then we have um, this um, chaotic reopening. Uh, you know, beginning um, in in spring of this year. And so you have a sudden uh, surge of pent up demand um, with supply being limited. So that's the immediate cause for the breakdown. And of course, that's what you see in the in the mass media. But be, beyond that um, is the larger story of capitalist globalization going back um, to the 1980s and, and on. And central to capitalist globalization has been um, the rise of a globally in, uh, integrated production, uh, uh, finance, and service system in which every country in the world has been integrated um, uh, into. And this system involves the fragmentation and the decentralization all around the world of complex chains of production, distribution, and consumption. So if you have a bottleneck in any one particular country, it, it, it clogs up the, the, entire, um, the, the entire system. And in fact, according to the, uh, the um, uh, Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, 56% of all trade um, <clears throat> worldwide is now in intermediate goods. So what that means is if you have a uh, computer, the different components of the computer, including the semiconductors, which are now in serious, seriously short supply, is what's being traded, all the different components that might go into a computer and then the assembly of the computer and then a distribution center to global markets for that computer is can be spread out over numerous, uh, over numerous countries and numerous um, phases. And so that means that any bottleneck anywhere in these complex chains um, clogs up the whole supply and distribution of, you know, of goods and uh, to, the, to the world. And we have a situation then in which Billions of dollars in raw materials and intermediate goods and finished products are flowing every day through this vast global spanning network of transportation and logistics that keeps the global economy uh, humming. And to do this article, I had to do some research and I discovered that there are at any given day, 50,000 merchant ships are plying the oceans, uh, keeping this, this globally integrated system of production, finance and services going. And the biggest of those ships carry 24,000 uh, containers. Uh, and, you know, one other fact here um, is that part of capitalist globalization has been mounting what we call a system of intermodal transportation, meaning that these, con these uh, containers are standardized and they fit exactly onto all of these merchant ships. The same uh, containers fit onto the uh, trucks, which then ship overland to planes um, and to railroad. And so you have this incredible inter uh, interdependence and interconnection of all countries, all national economies in the world. And that's the larger, at least that's a portion of the larger story here. Of course, the larger story of this supply chain breakdown is social and political, not technical. But that's the technical side to what's going on with the, with the breakdown. So then what is the, the social and political side? I mean, we're also seeing uh, throughout October, we saw the uh, striketober uh, protests, the strikes all across the country here in the U.S. We're also seeing, seeing instability, as you point out in the article, um, in places like Haiti. Uh, th there seems to be global unrest. 
Absolutely. I mean, we're in the midst of a of a of a global revolt, which I'll speak about it into a minute in a minute. But let's just take this back historically for a moment. What is absolutely central to the supply side breakdown is how transnational capital achieved mobility, global mobility through capitalist globalization in the late 20th century. So let's back this up a bit and say that the um, the, the last we're now in a we've been since 2008. We've been in a um, a deep structural crisis of global capitalism. And the pandemic did not cause that crisis, it only made it worse. But let's go back to the 1970s, which was the previous um, big structural crisis of world capitalism. And capital responded to that crisis of the 1970s by going global, by setting up, as we've already discussed, this, this um, transnationally integrated system of production, finance, and um, uh, and services. And it did so. It was able to go global and set up this integrated system on the basis of information technology, the first generation of computer and information technology, which was introduced uh, in the 1990s and on and spread throughout the whole uh, global economy. So that technology allowed capital to achieve global mobility. And by doing so, Capital was able to get around nation state constraints to its freedom to accumulate and make profit. Where did those nation state constraints come from? Well, it came from mass struggles throughout the 20th century by trade unions, by social movements, by radical political parties and so forth to place uh, pressure on capitalist states to through policies, bring about a redistribution of wealth downward uh, and to regulate capital at the nation state level. Um, and th that's the model that we had of world capitalism in different countries in the 20th century. So capital wants to break free of those nation state constraints to its freedom to accumulate and to exploit. And it launches capitalist globalization, utilizing information, the first generation of information technology. So, um, so that, that is the social and the political story of how cap how transnational capital achieves this global mobility is sets up this very volatile and very um, very uh, fragile system of global integration that we've been analyzing and that we now see the supply side um, uh, this supply side um, breakdown uh, but there's one other thing that we can um, that we can add here and it is what do we actually, I mean, how do we actually um, imagine, what do we have actually imagine happening over the next few uh, months and years? There's going to be continued um, bottlenecks in supply through the holiday season. But in my analysis, the supply problem will be resolved by next year. And why will it be resolved by next year? And um, that is um, because the underlying structural problem of global capitalism, the deep, the deep underlying structure of the global crisis uh, is extreme inequality. We, we know that 1% of humanity controls 52% of the world's wealth, 20% uh, of humanity controls 95% of the world's wealth, and 80% of humanity has only 5% of the world's wealth. So really 2008 was the explosion of this new structural crisis, but underneath that is that the global market can produce all of these goods and services, but the, but but cannot absorb that because of low demand. That's the larger problem. And inequality is intensifying. It's intensified in every country of the world for which we have data during the pandemic. So this means that supply, probably going into next year, is going to continue, is going to catch up to and outstrip demand. So the, the immediate supply chain breakdown is temporary, but the larger crisis 
uh, is long-term, it's structural. I don't even see a solution to it. And here is where the issue of labor shortages come in. <clears throat> we know that labor shortage in the United States and in other countries is not because um, there are everyone is employed. It's because the, the, the intensity of this crisis was brought home during the pandemic. Um, and workers do not want to go back to the miserable uh, jobs, which which are not even um, not even um, survival, not even livable wages, and miserable and dangerous working conditions. The class struggle and the social struggle is heating up in the United States and is heating up worldwide. It's part of this global revolt that I was um, referring to, and so you're going to get a, the, the supply side, you know, breakdown. Will will that will be you know will be resolved the supply chain breakdown, but the larger you know, political and social crisis of global capitalism is only going to uh, intensify. So you mentioned the sort of transnational capitalist class. Uh, what do you think their next move is in all of it? Because this seems like uh, a big crisis for them. And where do they go next? Yeah, well, the transnational capitalist class, which at this point has contingents in just about every country of the world. There's an Indian and Chinese and South African and Brazilian, Mexican members. So this is truly a transnational, you know, transnational fraction of world capital, of global capital. Um, but we want to remember that the only thing that unites the transnational capitalist class and its political representatives in states and political parties and capitalist political parties is wanting to see an open, unrestricted global economy with freedom to accumulate and to exploit. Beyond that, the political position taken by different members and contingents of the transnational capitalist class, and again, their political representatives in capitalist states, their political positions are quite varied and there's all kinds of internal infighting and there's no real unity whatsoever in, you know, to the global ruling class. And the biggest dilemma that this global ruling class faces is how do you address this crisis of global capitalism? How do you keep a lid on the global revolt, which is already underway? Uh, and there's, again, there's no unity, but in simplified terms, I'd say there's two wings, two different positions. One is um, continue with the same neoliberal policies, continue, continue deepening capitalist globalization as it's been undertaken for the last uh, few decades. And um, if there is a mounting global revolt, intensify what I've called, in fact, on your program, you interviewed me earlier, the global police state. And so we're seeing actually an increase in the US military budget. The Pentagon is gonna get $40 billion more um, this year. So all over the world, the global police state is intensifying. There's the, the, the war against immigrants. You see this right now are taking place, you know, as we speak in the headlines is intense. Surveillance technology as well. Surveillance technology and this surveillance technology, you know, the fourth industrial revolution uh, technologies, which include, you know, this credible capacity to surveil, to monitor, to control. Um, uh, these technologies were, were heightened during the pandemic. They've been ex more extensively deployed through the pandemic, and that's going to continue. So this one wing, to tie this together, this one wing of the ruling class is going to intensify global police state, and they're going to push forward capitalist globalization and neoliberal policies, as has been happening. But there's mounting voices within the transnational elite, and again, I'm simplifying into like two positions, that recognizes that in order to save global capitalism from itself, to save the system from its own internal contradictions, there needs to be a more significant restructuring of the system. System and reform of the system. And so these are the elements among the global ruling class that are calling for distribution of wealth downward through universal basic income, for instance, through uh, minimal taxation on, on transnational corporate transactions. So you had the G20 meeting um, earlier this year, and they approved a 15 
across the board 15% tax on, on, um, on corporations. So the corporations can't go to lower tax rates in different countries. So you have this impulse among global elites, again, not in the interest of you know, of in solidarity with that 80% of humanity that has 5% of the world's wealth, but specifically as a different reformist strategy for uh, giving a new lease of life to global capitalism and, and trying to resolve the, 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 the crisis. Now, this is all going to play out, those divisions within the, the ruling groups, it's to the, to the drumbeat of, again, intensified social and class struggles worldwide, which is already, as we speak, unfolding, intensified inequality and a deepening of that structural dimension that I've already spoken about without using the term, I'll use it now, over-accumulation crisis. So real quick, and I hope this is too off topic, but you mentioned the fourth industrial revolution. I believe that's also the name of a book by uh, Klaus Schwab of the um, World Economic Forum. What is the fourth industrial revolution for, for people that don't know? And does it have to be a bad thing? Can it be a good thing? Are there different components to all this? Yeah, this is very important. So the so the 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 reason I'm calling it the, the first because there the, there was steam and then there was electricity, but then the third industrial revolution was the first round of um, computer and information technology, the information revolution that really took off in the 1980s and 1990s, and now we have this new set of technologies of information technologies, a new generation, which includes. Um, uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, robotization, big data, uh, 3D printing, autonomously driven uh, land, air, and sea vehicles, nano and biotechnology, quantum and cloud computing, 5G networks, the Internet of Things. Uh, we're all familiar with this technology. and But there are several things that they all share in common, and that is they're driven by algorithms and big data in a way which we didn't previously have in this first generation of of information technology in the late 20th century. And so it, it is driving forward a new, radically new round of worldwide capitalist restructuring. Um, these, these new technologies, and we've already spoken about the ability of the ruling groups to utilize these technologies for much greater social control and, and repression, that's global police state. But this restructuring is, is, radic is taking place very quickly and these technologies could be used for very different purpose. They could be used under under um, people-centered governments uh, and and alternative political and you know socioeconomic system. These technologies could liberate humanity from from the drudgery of manual labor and could you know we have the technologies now for people that are blind to have their eyesight restored, for people who are deaf to have their their hearing restored, for people with quadriplegics to get limbs, you know, arms and legs. They work, but this technology is being used to maximize profit and for exploitation, not for the betterment of humanity. Under a totally different, radically different socioeconomic and political system, these technologies would be a blessing for humanity, but they are not um, at all at, at, this, at this point. What we've seen, I want to go back to the pandemic. These technologies had already been coming online in recent years, but they, the, their use of them was dramatically intensified during the pandemic. We are, you're interviewing me on Zoom. Uh, this didn't happen, I mean, in a, just a few years ago, even though we had the technology. Um, you know, so across the board, the technologies were massively introduced and upscaled during the pandemic, and that's going to intensify, that's going to continue to uh, intensify. And it's had several effects that we see already. The first is that it heightens uh, the concentration of capital in the hands of the giant conglomerates. We now have these 
you know, giant tech companies that, that are valued at over a trillion dollars. This is something brand new to global capitalism, multi, you know, trillion dollar companies, including Microsoft, including Tesla. It's also this, this technological revolution in the context of globalized capitalism has also given rise or is giving rise to this new block of hegemonic capital in which we see coming together the giant tech corporations valued now in literally in trillion dollars, the military industrial security complex corporations and the global financial conglomerates that are at the very heart of the control in the global economy. They're all coming together. You could say that uh, Wall Street, Silicon Valley and the Pentagon are all coming together in this new power block. And so that's, and, and, and their power is at the technical level, the technological level, this technology serves the rise of this power block. Um, so that is, you know, that's what we're facing at this time. So two more things I wanted to cover, uh, since I know we're short on time, I'll limit it to those two things. Uh, the first is, uh, you mentioned in the article that the disruption of trade during the height of the pandemic led a lot of academics and pundits to say we're moving towards a period of, uh, quote unquote, deglobalization and reshoring of production that had previously been offshore. Um, and things haven't necessarily panned out the way a lot of those mm -hmm. academics and pundits thought. Why is that? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, of course, I, I mentioned that in the article that I wrote in, um, in, in Truth Out. Exactly. The idea that um, the pandemic showed these fragilities to the global economy so that will collapse back into international economies, exactly what they've termed as deglobalization. But empirically, well, first of all, empirically, we know it's not true because the, and I cited this in the Truth Out article, the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development reported in a, in a study last month that worldwide trade is expected to reach record levels in 2021. This is after we've had the chaotic reopening of the global economy, and even still in the midst of the, you know, the, the pandemic, we have record high level of global trade. So that proves that deglobalization is really not on the agenda. But why? Why is it not on the agenda? And that's because the transnational capitalist class is simply too dependent on an open and an integrated global economy for continued accumulation of capital and for power and profit making on a world scale to withdraw back into national economies. And the transnational capitalist, capitalist class is so cross invested in each other and in numerous countries around the world that you can't disentangle this mass of global capital into national, um, international boxes. And because the structural power of the transnational capitalist class and especially the financial wing is so powerful, it dictates policies to states. And even if states, wanted to deglobalize. They're not in a structural position to do so. And they're taking orders, obviously is a bit simplified from the transnational capitalist uh, class. So we're not really, we're not going to see deglobalization, but we are going to see a new geopolitical restructuring of global capitalism. That's already underway. Let me give a, a hands-on example and then explain what, you know, what it might mean is that both governments and transnational corporations are now seeking to diversify their supply chains. One of the things taking place is what's called nearshoring. Nearshoring doesn't mean the corporations come back home. It, what it means is you locate the industrial runs and the distribution closer to the final markets. Um, and so we're seeing that. And already, they, as I cited in the article, there is a um, uh, an industry report from the global logistics and supply industry, supply chain industry, that 90% of shippers are already setting about to diversify their supplies and to set up a new geographical 
uh, cross-border patterns of integration. So we're going to have deeper globalization, but it's going to have a new, it's going to have um, uh, and denser webs of globalization, but it's going to take new, involve new regional uh, uh, configurations. So, you know, so in summary, no, we're not going to see the end of globalized capitalism. We're going to see its intensified global capitalism in, through new patterns. So then the last thing I wanted to inquire about was, um, you know, and I'm, I'm sure this can be difficult to explain to students. Uh, you talk in the article about how, contrary to a lot of popularly held notions, uh, crisis is actually endemic to capitalism. How would you explain that to, maybe if I have listeners that are new to this subject, how would you explain what you mean by that and the sort of history of that? Sure. So obviously it's going to be simplified. I have to say that from the start, if we had a, more time, I would, I would go into more rigorous um, detail, but it's not too hard really to understand. Um, the, the, under the capitalist system, what drives the system forward is maximizing profit, the accumulation of capital in the hands of, of the capitalist class. And capital's objective is to maximize this profit, which means minimizing the cost of labor. And that's the, that, that contradiction between capital and labor is at the very heart. That's the most fundamental contradiction of, of capitalism, that, that class contradiction. Uh, and maximizing profit and minimizing the labor costs and other costs of, of making that profit uh, means that you have this incredible inequality. We've already analyzed that, that, that corporations in the United States prior to the 1970s had to pay a wide, rising wage bill because of mass struggles, trade union struggles and working on popular class struggles, social movements, black and, and, and uh, Chicano liberation movement, um, the New Deal, the struggles around the New Deal, all of that meant that um, capital, that the wage bill increased in the post-World War II period. And that is why capital went global, to be able to take advantage of maximum cheap labor and the best conditions in any region of the world. So, what, so inequality is intrinsic to capitalism. Capitalism generates a lot of wealth, but polarizes that wealth. Uh, and what has broken down that polarization in the past have been these struggles at the level of the nation state, uh, union struggles, political, you know, radical socialist struggles, um, mass social movements has polarized that wealth as a countervailing tendency, forcing states to intervene in the market to depolarize that wealth. But now that capital is liberated from the nation state through globalization, nothing stops that intensive in polarization of of wealth. Uh, so that's intrinsic because capital is able to maximize its profits and leverage, have leverage over the global working class, which is why transnational struggles, transnational unionism, transnational social movement, transnational political vehicles are so necessary to confront um, global, uh, global capital. But what happens, I'll conclude with this, why then do we have these endless crises of capitalism? These crises are built into capitalism itself. And when you have a situation where uh, capital is accumulating massive profits, but the, the global market can't ab absorb uh, all of this. Capital has limited opportunities to reinvest its profits and carry out a new wave of accumulation, a new wave of profit making. Uh, and so capital just sits on endless amounts of accumulated profit. I might have not, I did not mention this in the Truth Out article, but the leading transnational corporations were sitting on $17 trillion in uninvested capital right before the pandemic. And that's a crisis for capitalism. You hold on to, you hold on to rather than reinvest all of those profits, you go into recession and depression and chronic stagnation. And that's what we've had since 2008, chronic 
uh, stagnation. So, you know, that is in a, a nutshell, of course, if we had more time, we could break this down further. So just, just in closing here, it sounds like the supply chain crisis is just uh, the tip of the iceberg for uh, the crisis of global capitalism. Exactly. The, the supply chain crisis simply opens up a window for, a window for us to see this profound crisis of global capitalism, the contradictions internal to this out of control system, that all it is is simply a, a flashpoint which shows us the... the um, the, the, the larger story here, precisely. Well, thank you again, William I. Robinson, for coming on Parallax Views. Is there any way that my listeners can keep up with your work? Um, I, I, yes, I have a, um, I have a, uh, a um, blog page at Facebook. If you just put William I. Robinson Sociologist, it pops right up. I have a regular uh, Facebook page, but the blog is where I publish all of my digital uh, publications where you can, you can uh, follow that. And I do have a new book uh, coming out in just three months. It will be out in February, uh, Global Civil War, which talks about a lot of what we've covered here in this interview. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. Before we continue our conversation on this edition of Parallax Views, I want to notify California listeners of the program about one of our sponsors, the Therapy Practice of Alexander Yu. Yu is an experienced teletherapist since 2008, and he goes by the motto, Flow, Adapt, Change, as Lao Tzu would say. And he wants to accompany you on your journey of self-improvement. Now, again, this applies to California listeners of the program. Alexander is a licensed psychotherapist and teletherapist. And if you'd like his services, then please contact him at Alexander U. That's Alexander U. Y O O dot com. And he can be reached by email at therapy at alexanderu.com or by phone at 323-834-9828. That's 323-834-9828. This is only available once again to my California listeners, but if you need anything related to therapy needs, please be sure to contact our sponsor, Alexander Yu. Well, hope you enjoyed that conversation with William I. Robinson. Next up, we're speaking with Kevin Gastola of Shadowproof and the Dissenter Newsletter to discuss a very interesting story involving the infamous Pegasus spyware developed by the NSO group. Now, Pegasus during the summer made a lot of headlines, and you'll get a recap of all of that in the conversation to follow. There's a lot of fears that this spyware has been used against activists, journalists, and dissidents around the globe. And as Kevin writes in a recent piece for The Dissenter, it appears that this spyware was used against 
Palestinian activists. But as you'll learn in the conversation to follow, it goes much deeper than that. So with that in mind, let's get right to the conversation with Kevin Gastola of Shadowproof and the Dissenter Newsletter. Welcome back to Parallax Views. A guest that I really enjoy speaking to uh, has been on the show multiple times. Kevin Gastola of Shadowproof and the project of Shadowproof called The Dissenter. How are you doing, Kevin? Hey, it's good to talk to you. So uh, just for my listeners, uh, it's been a while since I've had you on last. Uh, let my listeners know what The Dissenter is and what Shadowproof is. Yeah, so Shadowproof's a site. Uh, we do a lot of coverage of like national security stories and, and, and whistleblowers. And I have a colleague who does a lot of work uh, publishing journalists who write about prisons. And then the Dissenter um, is a newsletter that we run for people who want to be subscribers, you know, so get get more. We get a lot of, uh, the way we do our work is people give, they're, they're donors because they're readers or uh, they become members and support us on a monthly basis. The newsletter is a way of like giving them something regularly. Um, and so the the dissenter is the, the, the newsletter that we have free and paid subscribers and people there are able to stay up to date on whistleblower stories, as well as that's my main way of keeping people up to date on the case against WikiLeaks founder, Julian Assange. I was going to ask about that real quickly before we dig deeper into the initial reason I had you on to talk about uh, Pegasus spyware and Palestinian human rights groups. Uh, but what is going on with uh, Julian Assange at this point? What are the biggest updates you have? The most significant thing is actually one that's highly personal. Uh, he was trying to get married to Stella Morris, who was his fiance. And uh, over the past week, uh, we learned, and I'm just going to recap what happened over uh, the, the last seven days. Uh, we're, you know, we're talking on November 15th. Uh, we've, we learned from Stella that the Belmarsh prison, the high security prison where he's being held, was blocking his uh, request to get married to Stella while he's in jail. And this uh, seemed extraordinary. Uh, why would you do this to someone? And uh, why wouldn't the chaplain, why wouldn't officials there make it possible uh, for them to solidify this bond between each other? Uh, they have two children. And so they were suing. They, they actually drafted and were, I, I think they were ready to file a lawsuit. I don't think it ever was submitted officially, but they were ready to file a lawsuit against authorities for blocking their right to marry. And then we heard at the end of the week, uh, it was uh, on actually Thursday, I think last week that they backed down and that they will at some point before 2022 be married. So this is good. It doesn't really make much sense if you're the authorities who are seeking the extradition of Julian Assange who believe that it is right uh, if you're in the British government or in the U.S. government to be involved in blocking him getting married, I would think that would be nothing but a positive in trying to argue that he would not commit suicide if he was in prison. Now, on the other hand, I understand that uh, 
you know, and this goes to the issues that are being dealt with in the appeal, the idea that it'll be oppressive for mental health reasons to extradite him to a US prison. The defense is counter to this thing of, well, he's got kids, he's got a wife, will be that it doesn't really make much of a difference. He suffers from a mental health condition in which he's gonna have difficulty struggling with his suicidal impulses and putting him in prison is just going to intensify those impulses and make it harder for him to manage them. So that's why he shouldn't be put in restrictive confinement conditions in the United States. And that's why the extradition should be blocked. The big news that we have is this uh, personal development that they will be getting married. You know, something that is private, but because of the nature of this case, everything private is public when it comes to Julian Assange. And we are waiting for the High Court of Justice, this appeals court, to rule on the U.S. government's appeal. That could happen before the end of the month. It could happen in December or even the first month of next year. We're just kind of in a holding pattern waiting to find out how this court will handle that appeal. So then moving from that to uh, this article that you wrote entitled uh, Israel slapped terrorist label on Palestinian human rights groups after they uncovered Pegasus software. I want to get into uh, what the Pegasus software is and the NSO group for anyone that's been living under a rock maybe uh, for a while now. But uh, first off, what are these uh, groups that are being labeled terrorists? There's like, what, six of them, right? We have five groups, and these would be groups that are civil society organizations in Palestine uh, that work on issues of human rights and uh, freedom, I suppose, would be a, a very generic, generic way of describing them. Uh, all counter to the interests of the Israeli government. You know, they want to advance the military occupation of Palestine. They want to be able to uh, manage and control the Palestinians without any uh, repercussions or accountability whatsoever. And these are groups that are involved in documenting what they do, but also uh, uh, mobilizing um, responses when Israeli officials are out of hand. And so that's partly why they are on this list, but it, it becomes a little more sinister because what this uh, group based in Ireland, actually not in Palestine, frontline defenders, ended up helping these groups document whether they were infected by the spyware. And they talked with, or they, they asked five different organizations if you know they wanted to cooperate and share their personal devices so that they could be investigated and it could be uncovered whether they had been infected by this spyware known as Pegasus. And these five organizations are Atomir, Defense for Children International Palestine, the Union of Agricultural Work Committees, the Bassan Center for Research and Development, and the Union of Palestinian Women Committees. Uh, they don't sound like terrorist groups, right? Like they, they sound like uh, organizations that are involved in humanitarian work. And it turns out that if you look at the timeline, they were labeled terrorist organizations by the Israeli Defense Minister, Benny Gantz, uh, back in October, just a few days after this investigation started where the Frontline Defenders Group was trying to help them identify spyware on their phones. And it was, be it was becoming clear that they had been infected by the spyware from this Israeli private 
firm known as NSO Group. And so they're, they're in this report, what they're doing is trying to create a, a, cause, a causal relationship, uh, the idea that the government was retroactively trying to create a justification or a pretext for this treatment that if they are designated terrorist organizations, then the NSO group would be, it would be acceptable for them to infect and target these people with the spyware because that's what, uh, that's what Israel believes is its valid use. Um, that, that it can be used to counter terrorism. But if you're not engaged in terrorism and most of the people who have been targeted by Pegasus don't seem to have any relationship whatsoever to terrorism, or at least the cases we've been learning about in the past year have nothing to do with terrorism, then it is, it is not justifiable. And it in fact is something that has led to scandal and has led to NSO group being put on trade blacklists in, in countries. So real, real quick here, just, just to clarify a little bit, there, there doesn't seem like there's a lot of evidence uh, that these human rights groups, um, these Palestinian human rights groups are actually engaged in any form of terrorism. It just seems like they were, uh, this label was just slapped on them because they're uh, for Palestinian human rights. Well, I think it's even more specific. The idea here is that they were labeled terrorist organizations because they had uncovered that their phones were infected by spyware. And this Israeli surveillance firm um, is licensed by the Israeli government, only gets to operate because it has uh, sanctioned by the Israeli government. The Israeli government is reviewing and, and, and is supposed to know, um, you know to what degree they're carrying out their operations. Um, because if, if they're not uh, following a certain guideline, then they are not legitimate. Act- it's not a legitimate activity on the part of this business. So uh, it has to, they have to show us national security context to what they're doing. And in, in this case, um, it seems to be completely inverted because the Israeli government or this firm working with the Israeli government is targeting these organizations and wants to target those organizations. When they found out that they were being targeted, then they made the public announcement and labeled them terrorist organizations after they had already been infected by the spyware. Yeah, and that, that's another issue I think people should be aware of that I, I guess, I mean, technically NSO Group is uh, a private firm, but it's it works very much with the Israeli government. Yeah, yeah. And so just to be clear for your listeners, I don't know how much they've followed what unfolded over the last uh, several months, but this year was a, there was a big, huge, it wasn't like anything, like let's say people have heard about the Facebook papers or they've heard about the Pandora papers or the Panama papers or any of these projects. It maybe wasn't like that. We weren't working with a lot a lots of documents per se, but these organizations throughout the globe got together and they worked with, um, I think there's a, there's a division of Amnesty International and there's something called Citizen Lab that worked on this as well. Um, I think they the got, Amnesty International one is the security lab, right? Yeah, I think so. It's a security lab. And then there's also something called Citizen Lab. And together they um, did these investigations into 
people who believe they were potentially targeted by the NSO group. So it was like, uh, these are political opponents of these different countries, governments. Um, they are people who are journalists who were engaged in work exposing, let's say authoritarian activities or uh, just engaged in their everyday uh, accountability journalism. And there's activists as well who were targeted and they, they showed the range of targets, the attorneys, the journalists, the human rights activists, dissidents, their diplomats, uh, they reflected this and showed that this was ongoing. And we kind of knew a little bit about this. I mean, actually NSO group was implicated in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Um, and so uh, there was some of this that had trickled out over the last few years, but they did a wide investigation trying to account for the sort of activity that they engage in as a firm that is held, um, you know, there's, there's really no accountability for what they're doing. And then the result of the investigation and what was publicized, it, it got the attention of a, of a lot of people turn people's heads. Um, you had someone like NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden, who was interviewed by The Guardian and was uh, was putting it in stark terms and describing the nature of, of what was described. Uh, you know, maybe you might want to go back and cut in a clip and let people hear um, some of what Edward Snowden had to say, because it really crystallizes the threat posed by having a private firm that can engage in this kind of surveillance. Uh, and, and also, you know, shows that, you know, the threats aren't just government, right? Do we can have private firms that work in tandem with government agencies that are just as much of a threat to our privacy. So, Ed, could you just give us your initial reaction to the findings of the Pegasus Project? This is everywhere. This is a, an industry that should not exist. We're seeing what the NSO group is sort of the most famous of these guys is up to. Uh, but the NSO group is only one company of many. And if one company smells this bad, what's happening with all the others? I, I mean, when I look at this, what the Pegasus Project has revealed is a sector where their only product are infection vectors, right? They, they don't, um, they're not security products. They're not providing any kind of protection, any kind of prophylactic. They don't make vaccines. The only thing they sell is the virus. Um, and I think saying that they only sell this to government doesn't make that better when you look at who the targets are that have just been revealed. There's been a number of surveillance leaks and disclosures over the years. No doubt the most significant was yours. How do you think this one compares? This is certainly one of the most important. Uh, you know, and these are major newspapers, major institutions that we rely on. Um, this is peeling back a curtain that we have never seen done before, this level of granularity. In the past, you've called smartphones a spy in your pocket. Do you think this confirms that? I think it's actually worse. Uh, when I said they're a spy in your pocket, uh, it's the potential, it's the capability, it's the fact that, you know, um, these things are, are talking to the mobile phone network and tracking your locations. You've got, you know, Facebook spying on you. Uh, but these are largely commercial programs for commercial purposes. What we see now are people uh, creating an industry to 
those phones and go beyond the level of spying that already previously we knew existed. And now they're actually taking control of that phone fully and turning it against the people who bought and paid for it, but no longer truly own it. And the thing is, these phones are clones. When we're talking about something like an iPhone, uh, they're all running the same software around the world. So if they find a way to hack one iPhone, they've found a way to hack all of them. And they are doing that, and they are selling that. That is a knowing, intentional, willful attack on critical infrastructure that every one of us rely on. Uh, it doesn't matter what flag you live under. It doesn't matter what language you speak. Uh, we all have skin in this game. And so after, in the aftermath, we have this fallout, and the NSO group was actually put on a blacklist by uh, the U.S. government uh, limiting trade. And basically what it means now is that if you're a security researcher in the U.S. or someone who works on these kind, this kind of technology, that you can't pass along your expertise to this firm and help them in the development of any spyware that would be deployed uh, potentially against any of these targets. So it's limiting the work that uh, it's been described as a hacker for hire company. I think that's a good way of putting it. It limits what the hacker for hire company can do in collaborating with people who are compu computer security experts. And we're seeing contracts are being put in jeopardy. Uh, the UK government is considering not having anything to do um, with, with it, um, uh, withdrawing funding to some of the Gulf countries that have allowed uh, this firm to operate with it. And also, you know, um, you know a, a big deal here now, though, is that what we've seen in the way of accountability is limited to blacklisting it, and there haven't been any criminal investigations. So the next stage of dealing with what we know about the NSO group's business is to figure out you know, what of it should be prosecuted. Uh, and there are Palestinian officials who wanna sue. Um, I think uh, they're gonna try to, although they have a tremendous uphill struggle to bring it before the International Criminal Court for an investigation but those tend to not succeed very well because it's a US dominated, US identified court that caters to our foreign policy and we protect Israel. So it's not likely to go too far, but it's still worth trying to do. Uh, but we're hearing that the NSO group may try to blackmail the Israeli government if the Israeli government isn't um, a defender of their activities. I mean, I think they would know a whole lot about what the NSO group has done. And so uh, that raises the issue of, of, of gray mail, which is a thing that people who are in the national security state can do to government officials when, when they are charged with crimes is threatened to go into a courtroom and expose secrets that make those governments look bad. And often that may be a reason why they are not charged and held accountable. So another important aspect of this, I mean, for people that don't know, back in July, there were like 17 different media outlets that worked together yeah. to do a massive expose on the Pegasus spyware and NSO group. And I mean, there's concerns 
that this spyware has been used to shut down journalists in places like Mexico that have been going after the drug cartels, the dictators have used it against dissidents. So, you know, it really is a hacker for hire company, uh, very, very mercenary seeming project. Um, is there anything else we should know with regards to what this software does? I mean, I I'm assuming, you know, uh, there's all this information that they're getting access to uh, about these Palestinian human rights activists that is very private information. Yeah, so let me just, uh, instead of me paraphrasing and fumbling through, I've got this right in front of me. This is how frontline defenders described exactly how the spyware works. And then it'll give people who are listening to your show an ability of the, of the power that is in the hands of someone who can infect your electronic device with this spyware. So they say, this is from Frontline Defenders, who did the report um, exposing the, uh, the NSO group's infection of Palestinian human rights organizations. They say, when Pegasus is installed on a person's phone, an attacker has complete access to a phone's messages, emails, media, microphone, camera, passwords, voice calls on messaging apps, location data, calls, and contacts. The spyware also has the potential to activate the phone camera and microphone and spy on an individual's calls and activities. As such, the spyware not only allows for the surveillance of the target, but also anyone with whom they have contact via that device. This means that in addition to the targeting of Palestinians, including dual nationals, non-Palestinians, so like foreign nationals or diplomats with whom the victims were in contact, including Israeli citizens, could have also been subject to surveillance, which in the case of its citizens would amount to a breach of Israeli law. So we're getting into the legality there, but technically speaking, you get a sense of what the spyware could do if it's infecting uh, your electronic device. I mean, it, it's, I mean, to me, it's really, it's something very nightmarish, almost dystopian that this, uh, Pegasus software can give complete access to, you know, phones, messages, emails, media, microphone, camera, passwords, voice calls. I mean, I, it's like something out of a, a sci-fi novel. Yeah. And the thing that NSO Group hasn't been able to show yet is that uh, given all these examples where people who are activists, are diplomats, our political opponents of regimes, et cetera, given they're targeted, you know, these aren't terrorists. Uh, supposedly, the only way they're supposed to get away with selling this is if it's to help governments fighting terrorism or protecting national security. It's being used for all these other purposes. So it seems like they are actually violating what they're licensed to do, going beyond their license. And uh, so I think that's that's the key issue here. And I can also like, even within the boundaries of terrorism, the sort of abilities that this has, uh, what it's able to do to take control of somebody's device. I mean, we could, within the terrorism framework, have issue with, with what is being allowed because there's, there's so many who could have their, have be subject to warrantless surveillance beyond the target. Uh, you know, because you're talking about surveilling a phone, but then getting access to like the all the communications that happen with that phone, which means that there's a whole range of people who that person would be in communication with. So, but like clearly, 
the most alarming thing to me is the idea that, you know, journalists or activists would be targeted with, you know, thinking about journalists, having your whole network of confidential sources compromised, but then also, you know, activists having people who are potentially engaged in risk taking, um, you know, things that could lead you to perhaps be jailed as a political prisoner if you aren't careful. I mean, the governments that we're talking about, uh, they're not, you know, we're not talking about Western countries, we're talking about Gulf monarchies, we're talking about um, countries that don't necessarily have sterling human rights records, not that we do, but like, um, these are, some of these countries that we're talking about are really low on the list when you do like human rights indexes and you list like where people rank in terms of freedom and democracy. These are the countries that are being sold as spyware and being given the ability to use it and, and target these political activists and opponents. And again, what seems to be really scary in this specific case of these Palestinian human rights groups is, you know, you label these groups terrorists almost as a move to preemptively say, hey, we, we can withhold evidence on this. They're, they're a designated terrorist group. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and there's one other thing I should just mention for your listeners before we conclude, which is that the Washington Post, believe it or not, uh, did a good report earlier this year uh, looking at people who are linked to past U.S. presidential administrations, and even the current one, who had a uh, shield for this NSO group. And some figures that stuck out were people like Tom Ridge, who was the first Homeland Security Secretary, um, and then Gerard Araud, who's the former ambassador to the U.S. for France, um, Juliet KM, who was the Homeland Security official under Obama, or who was in Homeland Security under President Barack Obama, um, and then one that I find particularly noteworthy was uh, oh, Rod Rosenstein, former Trump deputy attorney general was an advisor who was involved. Uh, like I said, there were some issues with NSO related to Jamal Khashoggi and um, I believe Rod Rosenstein, yeah, he was brought in to um, be part of a spending spree to try to clean up the reputation of the firm after the murders so that they could get back to doing business. Um, and so he was supposed to like whitewash or show that they were going to put this behind them and not be implicated in murders, I suppose, going forward. And then uh, Jay Johnson was Homeland Security Secretary under Obama, and he was brought on to look at this company's um, the uh, company that's connected to NSO group. He was brought on to look at their human rights policy and give his stamp of approval and basically sign off on it, uh, which is something that is a bit distressing when we see what they've been up to around the world. You know, so they, I guess, would advertise to all of us that they are following some kind of human rights principle. And yet in the meantime, they're still doing this targeting. And I'll mention that recently in the appeals court, WhatsApp or so um, uh, Facebook, which is now a stupid company, Meta, uh, has been allowed to go forward with their lawsuit against NSO Group because WhatsApp sued 
them back in October of 2019 for the fact that um, they had found 1,400 mobile phones at least that belonged to attorneys, journalists, human rights activists, et cetera, who uh, showed that they were, you know, they were on there, they were using WhatsApp, they had been made vulnerable through the use of their app, and that's a, com they, they compromised the integrity of their app, so they're suing NSO Group, and that lawsuit has been allowed to go forward by the appeals court. An argument was made that by the NSO Group that they should be immune to that kind of lawsuit, but because they're a private company and not really working um, as a uh, oh, sorry, because they were working as a foreign agent, uh, they are liable in the United States. Um, so that lawsuit will go forward. So just in closing here, and I, I want to note what I, what I found interesting, too, was, I mean, uh, in the article you wrote, you mentioned that uh, in 2014, at least 43 Israeli whistleblowers from Unit um, 8200, uh, which is essentially Israel's NSA, signed on to a letter and refused to participate in uh, further operations against the Palestinian territories. Is there some dissent uh, within elements of uh, Israel and Israeli national security that looks at this stuff as being bad news? Yeah, I, I think in the same way that we've had some people here and there in the NSA who have raised concerns about the vast power uh, like Snowden and oh, we've had Thomas Drake, we've had people like Bill Binney and others in the NSA who have recognized the, the massive power. We see people within the Israeli government that are recognizing the tremendous power that, and, and intelligence agencies. And in, and in some ways it's kind of worse with Israel because not only are we talking about the ability to conduct mass surveillance on a population, but it's also to further this system of apartheid that allows for an entire um, community of people to basically be kept in what human rights advocates have uh, equated to an open air prison. You know, they're restricted, their travel is regulated. You're in the West Bank or Gaza and these military forces essentially restrict whether you're able to travel and uh, control your every way of life. And this surveillance is to further that subjugation. And you look at what you're capable to do. I mean, they're pioneering facial recognition software. Around the same time this story broke, there was a, a really alarming story that came out about uh, facial recognition and uh, Israel that uh, got uh, Snowden was, was definitely fearful of it. It was covered by uh, the Guardian, uh, yeah, Israel uh, and, and the Washington Post did some coverage. So they've escalated surveillance of Palestinians with facial recognition program. Uh, the Washington Post covered it was it was covered very widely, and essentially they're integrating facial recognition with a growing network of cameras and smartphones. Um, it's called Blue Wolf. It involves smartphone technology captures photos of Palestinians' faces, and then it matches them to a database of images that's so extensive that a former soldier described it as the Army's secret Facebook for Palestinians. Uh, the phone app will flash in different colors to alert soldiers if a person is to be detained, arrested, or left alone. So it's kind of like, it's literally like Minority Report with this 
app that you could point at an individual who is walking in front of you if you're a soldier and it'll make the determination of whether that person should be arrested or if they can be allowed to continue walking free, which is just like every awful, horrifying sci-fi dystopian novel you can remember. I, and, and that, but that's reality. That's what the Israeli state is building for its forces to control Palestinians. So last question, I promise to let you go after this. Uh, and you may not be able to answer this completely, but uh, with growing concerns about uh, surveillance and surveillance technology, is there really anything we can do? Or we have, have we opened a Pandora's box that is gonna be uh, impossible to shut? I mean, do we need things like more regulations or what, what can be done to counteract all this? Well, I don't actually ever believe that there isn't anything we can do. And I'll say that's like a blanket statement for any social problem. I mean, we can always change it, but some problems are more intractable than others. And this one is certainly heavily entrenched. Uh, the profit motive is extreme. Uh, there's uh, so many ways that uh, surveillance has become integral to our ways of life. Uh, it's accepted as the way that security is practiced. It's accepted um, as a way for uh, developing us as consumers. Uh, you know, the advertising agencies are relying on data tracking in order to push their products on us. And so a lot of these mechanisms uh, along with the, the apps that we use, where we are basically giving up our privacy by using those apps. Uh, we are putting data about ourselves, personal information about us onto the internet that can be used and turned against us every single day. So some of it is within our control. Some of it you can limit with um, encryption apps, although those aren't uh, bulletproof. Um, they have their own issues. Uh, I'd say that what we need to do is, uh, and I think Snowden would agree with me, is assert our, our, our right to privacy more militantly. I mean, I think it's, it's gone too far in one single direction. And the only way that you, you move it back is by deciding that you aren't going to agree that this should be off limits. So for example, let's close on something specific. We're talking about this thing of like Facebook for Palestinians, this blue wolf program. Why should that be allowed to exist? Uh, it is not necessary to keep people safe. It's clearly about advancing the uh, apartheid state against Palestinians. So what we need are groups and people to say that that kind of a program should be uh, killed and, and should not be existent. So these kinds of programs that we learn about, as is what happened with Edward Snowden, these things like the PRISM program, the collection of, of metadata, the bulk collection of metadata, you know, we need to get away from the collect it all approach and that's what we have to challenge against government, the idea that, that it's okay to collect it all. I mean, what these firms like NSO Group are doing, and there's, a, there's not the only one, there's another one that actually is on the blacklist that's lesser known, but in Israel called Kandiru that I mentioned in my article. So 
Don't think that there are other firms that are going to pop up that engage in this activity. And they're basically just mimicking the operations of, let's say, the U.S. government or GCHQ in the U.K. or uh, the Israeli agencies, uh, Gulf monarchies, spy agencies, uh, China, Russian spy agencies. You know, they're these these private firms like NSO Group are trying to model their business so that they can sell it. And but but they're only they're doing things that we know government agencies are doing. And so I think it's up to us to set what the boundaries are going to be for this. And unfortunately, we just don't see a lot of consistent engagement from the public. I do think people want privacy. I do think people care about their privacy. And uh, we know that Apple is now selling privacy to you when they, when they market their phones, whether they're actually protecting your privacy or not is another question. But uh, they wouldn't be doing that if they didn't think people cared about privacy. So I think it's up to us to, to um, make it known to people who represent us, like any other issue. If you don't make it known to people that you care about this issue, then they get to claim ignorance. And if they're, if they're gonna do anything about it, they have to hear from us that we're angry that our privacy rights are being trampled on. Well, hey, Kevin, I'm, I'm glad that you're covering topics like this because you know I, I always tell people, you know, uh, talking about Cambridge Analytica a few years ago uh, was a real big deal for people when it came to like privacy issues. But that's like only the tip of the iceberg. You start looking into this Pegasus spyware and NSO group. I mean, it's really scary stuff and we need more people to talk about it. So uh, with that in mind, how can my listeners keep up with the work you and others are doing at Shadowproof and the Dissenter. Yeah, and, and let me just, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll plug my stuff, but I just wanna quickly tell people that they should be on the lookout for any of these stories where it talks about these journalists or activists who have given up their devices to be investigated so that they can see if there's you know, spyware infections. I think this is, you know, this is a new kind of collaboration to me. I don't remember this in the last 10 years that I've covered these kinds of stories, um, we, we've not seen this where people are basically willing to sacrifice their privacy in order to prove to the world that uh, a private surveillance firm or even a government agency has completely run amok and is working outside the law. Uh, so aside from that, if you go to the dissenter.org, um, you can get a subscription to my, it's a free newsletter and, and hear more about these kinds of stories. You know, I connect the story to whistleblowers because Edward Snowden mistracked it. And then there's people in the Israeli um, intelligence agencies who have spoken out against the total surveillance state that their country is building. Uh, so I cover these kinds of things with the dissenter along with other whistleblower stories. And then, as I said earlier, I keep up to date on the WikiLeaks case, uh, the, the extradition case against Julian Assange. So thank you for having me on your show. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with William I. Robinson and Kevin Gustola. As always, if you appreciate the work I do here at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. We've got everything from a one, five, 10, 15, and even a $100 tier if you want to support me there. Please, please, please consider making a monthly donation 
And of course, at the $10 tiers and above, you get a producer's credit shout out, which means producer's credit shout outs too. Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, and Jeffrey. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Use, consider supporting me at the $10 tier or above on my Patreon page at, again, patreon.com slash parallaxuse. That's patreon.com slash parallaxuse. And with that being said, Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.